Amen. Please be seated. You can turn your Bible to John 20. We'll look at verses 11 through 18 this morning. A text is printed in the bulletin for you. Um, a lot of you probably know this already. My parents divorced when I was uh, 13. Uh, maybe a common experience, uh, unfortunately, for a lot of us in the room, having divorced parents. Um, my divorce when I was 13. After that, my relationship with my father was not good. Not sure if I would characterize it as good before that, but uh, it was really not good after that. And uh, a decade after they were divorced, so was, I think I was 23, um, uh, I had my last conversation with my father. It was argument, really. And uh, we didn't speak for a year after that, and then he died. Um, and our pastor at the time, Charles, um, led the funeral service for us, even though my dad wasn't a Christian. Uh, and, uh, and something that he said really struck, struck me, it stuck with me. He said that my father's life and relationships had been characterized by a series of little deaths over the years, which ended with or culminated in this final big death, physical death. Um, and that's when it really hit home to me what the scriptures mean by death. What the scriptures mean by death. Death is the end of relationship. The end of relationship. That's what death is. And it's the most terrible curse you could pronounce on someone as you thrust them away from you or you cut them off. You're dead to me. Uh, divorce. Divorce is one of the main images of death that we have, um, which is why the living God hates it. Death means the end. It means the loss of relationships. Maybe you can think of relationships, um, family relationships, friendships, uh, maybe even relationships in the church. You can think of relationships that have experienced death, whether the people are still physically alive, walking around the world somewhere else, or not. The scriptures say that uh, the most important of all of our relationships, the heart, the core of all of our relationships, the main relationship that we have is our relationship with God himself. And the scriptures say that that has been characterized by death because of our sin. Apart from Christ, we are described as dead in trespasses and sins. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Apart from Christ, we are dead to God. And apart from Christ, we want God dead. And we say, you're dead to me. Because we've wanted him out of our lives. We want to cut him off and we've rebelled against him. That's what sin is. Apart from Christ, we are the walking dead. Living a life full of a, a series of little deaths. And our broken relationship with God will ultimately end with our physical death. But the gospel says that Jesus Christ has conquered death. And he's turned it all around. His resurrection means that our relationship with God is no longer characterized by deaths. Not just a, a life filled with a series of little deaths leading up to one big one at the end. It's, it's no longer broken, our relationship with God. Because of the resurrection, we can know that. As long as Jesus lives, our relationship with God will never be broken again. Resurrection means relationships that will never 
end. Death means the end of relationship. Resurrection means the opposite of that and better. It means the, the relationships will never end. That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we, as we see uh, in our passage, Jesus raised from the dead and, and engaging with Mary. So let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you've not left us in the dark, that you've not left us apart from Christ, but you've sent him, the light of the world, into the world to um, show us what you are like, to demonstrate what a relationship with you is, what it should be, to live that relationship for us and to, uh, to reveal it to us, to, to share it with us. We're thankful for Jesus, for who he is and what he's done for us. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit who illuminates our minds and, and transforms our hearts so that we can receive this word, this gospel, this good news about Jesus, especially his resurrection. We pray for your Spirit's help now so that we might be able to relate to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So Mary Magdalene, pretty important figure in the gospels. Uh, Mary, uh, she's from Magdala. That's why it's Mary Magdalene. Uh, Magdala was a fishing town, a little fishing uh, village maybe, on the, the Sea of Galilee, uh, sort of near where Jesus and the disciples grew up, those other little coastal villages on the, the Sea of Galilee. Mary Magdalene was one of the several women who accompanied Jesus and the 12 disciples and maybe others, um, ministering to Jesus and providing for the group out of their means the Gospels say, Luke tells us in his Gospel, that Jesus had saved her from seven demons. And, um, and she was among those who stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. So she loved Jesus. And she was devastated by his death. So here as we get into chapter 20, the, the account of the resurrection of Jesus, um, after Peter and John had seen the empty tomb but had not seen the risen Lord Jesus, um, at least John believed, didn't really understand. They went back to their homes. So after Peter and John left, it says that she, Mary, um, stood weeping outside the tomb. That's, she was wailing. That's what that word means. Um, uh, she was wailing. We actually get the word maudlin 
from, uh, from Magdalene. I think it's how the British pronounce the, the word Magdalene. Uh, because Mary weeps, she's maudlin. That's, that's where we get the word maudlin from anyway. Um, she's weeping. She's crying out. She's wailing because she believes that Jesus is dead. Um, more precisely, she believes Jesus is still dead, which would be the normal case for people who are dead, that they'd be still dead. That's, that's why she's weeping. And what's more now, she's weeping because even his body is gone, and she believes it to be probably stolen. So she's mourning his appalling death, which is compounded by the loss of the ability to grieve with a proper funeral, So it's the end of the relationship. That's what she's weeping. That's what she's wailing about. It's the end of the relationship in the most abrupt and terrible way. She has not yet interpreted his missing body rightly, the the empty tomb. She hasn't interpreted it rightly yet. She hasn't yet believed that God has raised him from the dead, but he has. So it says, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So you'd think maybe the sight of these two angels would shock her out of her weeping for for a moment, out of her severe grief. For just a moment, she might ask something like, wait, how did you get in here? I've been standing here at the entrance. You weren't here a minute ago, but you didn't walk past me to get in. How did this? Who are you? Um... Usually the scriptures describe the sight of angels as pretty traumatic in and of itself, but she's already been traumatized. She really is uh, stuck in her grief. And so they said to her, uh, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. It's almost uh, exact repetition of what she had said to the disciples in the last paragraph that we looked at. Um, but you notice how she refers to Jesus as my Lord. My Lord even though she believes that he's dead and gone. My Lord. He was everything to her. And, uh, and the end of that relationship is ruinous. It's catastrophic. It's overwhelming. I'm sure she hasn't quite figured out what to do with the rest of her life now that he's gone. Her great grief is understandable, but it's also unnecessary. It's also out of alignment with reality, which she is about to discover. Mary hasn't understood the good news of the empty tomb yet. She's about to. She's about to. In fact, the angels question to her, why are you weeping? It's sort of the setup for the big revelation. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that they're deeply concerned for her emotional well-being, asking how she's doing. But you can also imagine the twinkle in their eyes when they ask, And in my mind, at least, the classic TV trope uh, comes to mind. It's pretty funny anyway when you're you're talking about someone else and they come up behind you and you ask the question, they're right behind me, aren't they? (laughs) Um, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know it was Jesus. She didn't know it was Jesus. Mary didn't recognize the risen Lord Jesus when she first saw him. There are probably... A few explanations for this that make sense to us anyway. One, she's in a pretty bad state, having trouble wrestling with the the reality of the world right now. Two, 
she might actually have blurry vision because of her weeping. Just physically unable to see that it's Jesus. Three, the last time she saw Jesus, he had been beaten beyond recognition, was hanging on the cross. This was not, he didn't appear the same way as when she saw him just a few days before on the cross. Four, the impossibility of it actually being Jesus. I mean, that expectation had never entered her mind yet. That dictated her perception. She could not see what she, what she could never have expected to see. And fifth, uh, whatever change took place in Jesus at the resurrection, it was actually a common experience for his disciples to not recognize him. We see that in several of the accounts. All the Gospels basically have something about how the disciples failed to recognize him until he, uh, he really revealed himself to them in some surprising way. His, his body is the same. It's an empty tomb. It's that body that was raised. His body is the same, but it's different in ways that we can't understand. I mean, we can kind of point to some of the ways in which it's different, but we really can't understand it. He eats food, and you can touch him, but he can also appear in a locked room behind, uh, uh, behind locked doors, or he can vanish from your sight while you're sitting eating a meal with him. He still bears the marks of his crucifixion, and apparently he always will, have those marks, but he's been fully healed, never to die again. You've never seen anybody like that. I'm sure we wouldn't know what to expect or how to process it if we saw somebody like that. Paul reflects on this some in his great chapter on the resurrection. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, Paul says. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Can you even begin to imagine that? What is sown is in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. You can't comprehend what it would be like to meet the man who's from heaven. She's standing there with a man whose body God has remade in heaven. A man from the other side of death. She doesn't know it. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. So it's, it's quite possible that the garden that they're in uh, that they're standing in, that the tomb is in, that had a gardener. Maybe Joseph of Arimathea owned the whole property, the garden where the crucifixion took place, the garden where the tomb was in the same place, and a wealthy person like Joseph would probably have someone to tend that garden. So it's reasonable to think that there was a gardener for the place where they're standing. It's reasonable for her to think that maybe, this is an explanation, maybe Joseph's gardener, 
relocated the body. But I think uh, that there's a little more going on here. John, the gospel writer, the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John is quite capable of seeing the connections with the Old Testament scriptures that, you know, uh, in the, the story that he's recounting to us, at least hinting at them as he writes his gospel account. And there's a connection here with uh, garden themes throughout the Old Testament, but uh, particularly the Song of Songs. Because there in the Song of Songs, in poetic language, evoking the memory of the Garden of Eden, filled with a sensory image, uh, imagery of aromatic spices, the woman is portrayed in a state of desperate confusion. She's searching for her beloved She's asking bystanders if they've seen him. She's turning. She's turning this way and that in search of her master. So July 22nd, which is just last week, uh, is actually Mary Magdalene's feast day in the Western liturgy. And the reading for her feast day comes from the Song of Songs. It comes from chapter 3 here where it says, On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets, and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go. So there's no reason to get carried away uh, with the scandalous idea that Mary Magdalene was Jesus' secret bride, as at least a Gnostic gospel and and modern writers might like to speculate about it. Um, In fact, it's no secret that Jesus has a bride. It's no secret. Uh, He has a bride. It's the church of which Mary is a fairly representative member. Jesus is the gardener bridegroom that we've been waiting for throughout the the Old Testament scriptures. Just as the first Adam, who was to tend God's garden, just as the first Adam woke up in the garden, and the first thing he saw was the woman. And he celebrated and said, at last, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. So Jesus, on his resurrection, waking up in the garden met a woman who represents us, his bride, the church, in our relationship to Jesus, whom our soul loves. We're meant to see ourselves in Mary's place as she finds, not just as she finds Jesus, but as she finds that Jesus has found her. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned And said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. He promised to come back to his people. That's what he said in chapter 14. He said, I will come to you. I won't leave you alone. I won't leave you as orphans. I won't leave you cut off. I won't leave that relationship dead and gone. I will come to you. And he did. Because death could not stop him from keeping his promise. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice, he says in chapter 10. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And the sheep follow him, 
for they know his voice. So when, she, uh, when Jesus addresses Mary directly with what you can imagine is the caring intimacy of using somebody's name, using her name, she finally recognizes him, and then apparently she clings to him. She clings to him. And so Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, or stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. <clears throat> so Jesus isn't stiff-arming Mary. Actually, there's a lot of artwork throughout the history of artwork that, um, that shows this, as actually he's, he's sort of fending her off as she's uh, trying to cling onto his feet. He isn't stiff-arming her. He isn't trying to maintain an appropriate distance. He doesn't need the Mike Pence, Billy Graham rule to have a proper relationship with uh, a woman when they're alone. Um, It's like the song says, she's holding on to him and won't let go. The song of songs. As soon as I found him, I held him and I didn't let him go. But he has much more to do. And so does she. Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. And so here's the most amazing part of this account, I think. Jesus has defeated death, and he wants his brothers to know what that means. Leslie Newbegin said, The real meaning of the resurrection is the creation of a new relationship between Jesus and those who believe in him. The faith of a Christian has not been fully described if it falls short of a direct personal relationship of love and trust between the Christian and his Lord, a relationship which nothing can destroy. I actually offer a slight correction to this. The the real meaning of the resurrection, the first meaning of the resurrection anyway, is the everlasting nature of the relationship that Jesus has to his Father. The everlasting nature of Jesus' relationship to his Father. Jesus died, which means he suffered in some sense, uh, in a way that we can't really conceive of, he suffered the end of relationship with God, the end of relationship with his Father. He was cut off. He died. But even death could not destroy that relationship. Even death, his own death, could not destroy that relationship. And now Jesus lives to God, his Father, forever. So with Jesus, death doesn't mean the end of relationship. Apart from Jesus, that's exactly what it means for us. And that's really what we deserve. It's really what we choose when we sin against God. We're saying we don't want to have a relationship with you. That's what we're saying with our sin. We're choosing death. We're choosing the end of our relationship with God. But it's just like Mary standing there with Jesus, standing with a man whose body God had remade in heaven, a man who is himself on the other side of death, A man who lives to God forever. Mary standing there with him, that's where we are. Standing there with him. On the other side of death, relating to the risen Lord Jesus. The risen Lord Jesus, for the first time in John's gospel now, calls his disciples 
not just his people, not just his followers, not his servants, his brothers. That's what he calls them. For the first time in John's gospel, he calls them his brothers. Rodney Whitaker says, not only has Jesus not put off his humanity, he hasn't raised in some ethereal, bodiless, uh, disembodied, um, ghostly sort of sense that isn't truly human. Not only has he not put off his humanity in his resurrected state, he has inaugurated a new level of intimacy between himself and his disciples. The new community he founded during his ministry became a new family at the cross. You remember, we looked at it several weeks ago now, at the cross when he gave his mother to be his disciples' mother, to, to bring them together in the same family. At that moment, he became his disciples' brother. That's what happened. And then death tried to end that relationship, but it couldn't. Jesus died, but then he rose victorious over the grave. So the risen Lord Jesus, right now, Hebrews says, is not ashamed to call us brothers, brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to be known as our brother. And if the risen Lord Jesus is our brother, then it means that he, has, he was made like us in order to make us like him. 1 Corinthians 15 again says, As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. So if you're related to the man of dust, that first Adam, then you're just like he was. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. His resurrection means our resurrection. And his resurrection is already in the bank. And nobody can take it away. His resurrection means nothing can end our relationship with God Nothing can end our relationship with our brother, Jesus, not even death. So Romans 8 says, I'm, I'm sure, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm sure of it. And for Jesus, the biggest meaning of it all is our relationship with God as our Father. That's what he wants his disciples to know about, his brothers. Because he has united himself to us, taken us as his family, because he lives forever, because he ascends to the Father on our behalf, then his Father, Jesus' Father, is our Father. And his God is our God. We have the same relationship to God as the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. It's a relationship that not even death can destroy. That relationship was bestowed on us when the risen and ascended Lord Jesus poured out the love of God into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he gave us. The Spirit himself is the relationship of the Son to the Father, and he is ours. His Spirit is our Spirit. He's given him as a free gift. The free gift of the grace of God to be received by faith. It's just, 
It's just like all those prophecies that you read about throughout the Old Testament that Brenda read about in our Old Testament reading, Jeremiah 30, 22, where God says, it's a promise, it's a prophecy, he's going to bring it about, you shall be my people, I will be your God. Except now, because of the resurrection, it's present tense. You are my people. I am your God. And it ever shall be. The triune God is our God, and we are his people, and he's our father. This also has the happy effect of uniting us to one another in relationship that will never end. Probably uh, after the death of Jesus, if, if it had just ended with that, with his death and their grief, Mary and the other disciples would have just disbanded, gone their own ways, maybe gotten together on the anniversary of the death and shared some nostalgic moments with their sadness. But the reason for their fellowship was lost. They just would have gone their separate ways and fallen apart as a group and disintegrated. But now Mary is sent to get everyone together and celebrate the never-ending divine relationship that Jesus shares with his disciples. Against everything in this world that would tear us apart, everything that would threaten our relationships, the risen Lord Jesus brings us together as a new family centered around himself, centered upon his Father, by the Spirit that he shares with us all. So together, now and forever, our shouts will ring for eternity, Jesus is our brother. Jesus is our brother. God is our father. He's our father. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done to sin against God, your relationship with God is no longer characterized it's no, by brokenness and a series of little deaths leading up to one big death where you're separated from him forever. You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins through faith in Jesus Christ. As long as the risen Lord Jesus lives, you are alive to God. Your life with God and others, instead of being that series of little deaths that ends once and for all, culminates in a big death, instead of that, your life and relationship to God and others is a series of little resurrections. It's a series of little resurrections that ends with the big one ends with eternal life. Resurrection means relationships that will never end. So you go and tell your friends about that. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you've called us your friends, not just your friends, not just your people. You've called us your sons and daughters through Jesus. You've brought us into your very family this is a bigger thing than any of us can take in, but we know it is good because Jesus defeated death. He rose from the grave. He revealed himself to still be in relationship with you and with us in the most intimate ways. And so we have a great hope, a hope through this life and a hope for the next. We pray that we would see the resurrection start to... Uh, take hold in our lives now that our lives with you and with one another would be characterized by a series of little resurrections as long as we live, as long as Jesus lives, as long as we're 
trusting in him and loving him and following him and being stuck with him, we pray that you would bring resurrection into our lives in ways that we would be able to celebrate uh, and celebrate you and your resurrection power together with our brothers and sisters in the church because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We pray these, in, these things in Jesus' name. Amen.